0: You can open your Bibles with me to John chapter 20. John chapter 20. Lord willing, today we will cover verses 19 through 23 of John chapter 20. And so I'll ask you at the beginning if you would stand, if you are able, stand with me and we will read verses 19 through 23 of John chapter 20. Beginning in verse 19. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Thank you. You may be seated. As you're being seated, bow with me in prayer once again. Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank You for the testimony of Your Word. Father, I thank You for Your faithfulness in meeting with us week by week and directing our hearts and minds as we look into Your Word. Father, I pray that You would do that once again for us now. Father, help us to enter fully into what You have communicated, into what's happened literally in the history of Your people. Father, I pray that there would be a fruitful application brought to us. Lord, help us to see our own need for exactly what you gave to your people so long ago. Lord, I pray that you would meet that need. Father, I ask that the Lord Jesus Christ would be exalted during this time. Oh God, I would forbid that I should say anything about him that is not true. And I pray you would keep me from doing so. But, O oh God, I do pray for power, for the ability to proclaim truth with authority, to be one sent by you, even as you sent your son In these words before us. Father, I ask for help and guidance that you would minister to us by your spirit, meet with us in the midst of your people. In Jesus name, I pray. Amen. Last week, you'll remember we've been progressing since the point of Jesus' death and His burial. We saw in the beginning of this chapter, 20, we saw Jesus' resurrection indicated to us in His empty tomb. And Mary Magdalene going and finding His tomb empty, telling Peter and John, and then them hustling together to go and search it out. And then we went on to see Mary Magdalene weeping last week outside the tomb of the Lord. And we saw where she was distraught, where she was grieving and she was blinded by her grief. And we saw their interaction and what it means for us to see Christ in the midst of our grief and our need to see him. And then today we see the picture kind of broadened a little bit more in that the rest of the disciples that are gathered together in this upper room, those who we find out from other scriptures did not believe Mary Magdalene or the other women, They're still in a position of doubt and confusion and sorrow that they need to be ministered to. They need the Lord to do something in them to deal with their doubt and despair. The title of this message this morning is Peace Be With You. Jesus says that twice in our text. We've actually seen Jesus make that exact statement to his disciples previously in John's Gospel. But here today, the focus is Jesus' declaration to these disciples. Peace be with you. And I was tempted at the beginning to go through somewhat of an introduction around this theme of peace and what kind of peace he's talking about and how that's going to affect us. But in consideration and seeing how specifically it's addressed in the text, I'll trust that we'll be able to move on without any more of an introduction. So with those things in mind, look with me at verse 19 of John chapter 20. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. So, the first thing we need to see in this verse is the special attention that is given to the fact that it is the first day of the week. This was Sunday. This was the day Jesus rose from the dead. It was the day he rose. And think of it this way. John, in his account of these events, he very well may have said, on the evening of that day, and then just proceeded to give us the unfolding of these events. But he says, on the evening of that day, the first day of the week. You see, he brings some special attention to that. We might be inclined to ask, why does he mention it specifically in this way? Now, on this point... I've addressed this subject a few times in recent weeks, and I want to consider it once again with you, that there has been much confusion about this reality, the first day meeting together, the first day of the week. There's been a lot of confusion throughout the history of the church, and there is confusion even to today concerning this subject. You see, what are we to make of the pattern that's demonstrated here of the disciples of Christ gathering together and getting a manifestation of Jesus Christ. And I say manifestation really for two reasons. One, because that's something we ought to long for today. But it wasn't only a manifestation in the sense that it was His literal physical body raised from the dead. But I say manifestation because there is an application to us. He was literally physically there, but there is a pattern established of the Lord meeting with and being among His people when they gather and when they're together on the first day of the week. But let me be clear, nowhere in the Scriptures are we ever commanded to meet on the first day of the week. In the Old Testament, in the, under the Old Covenant system, they were required by law to observe the seventh day as a Sabbath. We do not find anywhere in the New Testament a a charge, a command, or a law given that says we're to gather specifically on the first day. So we might ask, why do we do it? Why is it that we're here today? Why didn't we meet yesterday? You know, there are many that would claim to be in the Protestant tradition, otherwise known as Seventh-day Adventists, who will say, if you don't gather on Saturday, then you're in sin. You're breaking the fourth commandment. My response would be that as we see modeled for us, even in these beginning early, early uh, moments, early days, even of the New Testament church, we see the pattern established, which was continued from this point forward. This is a starting point. And so I would argue and maintain that the Old Testament Sabbath has been fulfilled in all those who trust in Christ. Do you remember the text from Hebrews 4 we looked at that said concerning the Sabbath, all who have believed have entered that rest. We're not trying to find some Sabbath rest in a day. Our Sabbath is a person and His name is Jesus Christ. We rest from our works and trust in His finished work. We've dealt with these things. I know maybe this is repetition for us, but it's important to reconsider. And so having considered that, I asked the question, why is it? that we commit to meeting on the first day of the week. Is there something inherently special about the first day of the week? Well, while there's not a direct command for us to gather in the way that we do on the first day, here's the first time that we see the disciples, the church, gathered together, the Lord meeting in a peculiar way. And you could say, well, that's just happenstance, and I'm making too much of the fact that John says the first day of the week. Except as we're going on to see in the next message, we're going to see eight days later. In other words, the following first day of the week, the following Sunday, they met together and Jesus appeared to them in a like way. That's what we find out with the life of Thomas. You recall Thomas? What do we know Thomas as? Doubting Thomas. The one who did not believe. The one who said, I'll never believe until I see his hands and his side and put my fingers in them. He said, I'm not going to believe. He missed out on this manifestation, this appearing of Christ to his people because he wasn't gathered on the first day. And you might expect, well, surely whenever Thomas meets back up with them the next day or the day after that, that Jesus will appear to him then. But what we find is significant is that John records to us the days that these things take place And I believe there is a pattern being established of God's people gathering in commemoration of the day Jesus rose from the dead. We call it in our particular context, the Lord's day, the day of his resurrection. We gather together, remembering Christ and him raised from the dead. And we see this was the pattern of the early church. This pattern has continued unto today. But that's not the primary focus of our thoughts today. That's just one thing to consider in light of the language that's used. And we don't want to throw out or disregard any of the truths that are made known to us in the Word of God. And that is certainly one of the things being made known to us. The second thing we see is that on the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the the Jews. So what is it we find out in this expression? The doors were locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews. The second thing we come to look at together is why these disciples were locked in this room, the state in which they're at during this time. And here's what's interesting. You know, I'm making the point that there's a pattern established in our text of the Christian people gathering on the first day of the week. And yet, let's be honest, these disciples. Disciples were not anxiously awaiting the Lord coming and ministering to them. They were terrified. They're cowering in this upper room. They're not waiting for His arrival. They're cowering in fear. They've locked themselves in a room. Kind of like frightened rabbits tucked into a hole. Trying to avoid the predators surrounding them. These disciples have just recently witnessed. The Jews viciously condemning and killing their Lord. And we're right and assuming that they believed that they were going to be next. These disciples are ruled by fear and doubt. So here we have the day Jesus rose from the dead. They're locked in this room for fear of the Jews. Now before we go any further, I want to ask this question. Are you acquainted with this kind of fear? If you're honest, you'll tell me, well, nobody's threatening my life for being a Christian, at least not yet. It may come, the day may come, but right now, no one's telling you, if you trust in Jesus, we're going to kill you. Nobody's telling you that. But for some reason, I believe that we tend to live with a similar kind of fear, doubt, and anxiety. In other words, here's the picture. It wasn't just the Jews that were opposed to the Christians The Christians were opposed by the Jews and the Romans. They were being attacked from every side and disregarded from every side. And what's pictured in that and the way that's going to apply to us today is not necessarily the threat of your life. or you being imprisoned or crucified? Not in a literal sense, perhaps yet. But do you feel the pressure of the world against you? Do you feel the pressure? Are you ruled by the same kind of cowardly fear concerning the vain opinions of people who would oppose biblical Christianity? You see, this is a very real thing. And and the way this works itself out in our own lives is interesting. And maybe it varies with each of us. But we're pressured into not living in light or speaking in light of the truths that we believe. Because it may not give us peace. You see, Jesus, we're going on to see, He says... Peace be with you multiple times in our text and in our desire for a measure of peace amongst the people that we live around and in and among, we are often so afraid of the potential for war that we don't hold strong our convictions in order to not be opposed. And the truth is that if you have even the slightest degree of conviction or commitment to orthodox truth, the unbelieving world is going to oppose you. It will cost you relationships. It will cost you respect and esteem from others. It might even cost you your job. Or at the very least a promotion. They're not going to promote the guy whose worldview and view of Christ is constantly bringing conviction against everyone around them. It will cost you if you're going to hold to orthodoxy in your relationships. And surely you know this is true. Now don't mishear me. I think it's right and appropriate that we strive to live at peace with all people. That's a biblical command. We are supposed to, in as much as it's up to us, try to have reasonable, grounded, healthy relationships with unbelievers in the world. And yet, and yet, too often, we are just like these disciples who are so ruled by fear and uncertainty. And I believe perhaps we're desiring to be faithful to the Lord, and yet we're also prepared to lock ourselves away from the world in a room in our weakness and helplessness. And really what it means is we're seeking to avoid being attacked at all costs. How does this work itself up practically? I'll tell you how. You surely have friends or acquaintances that you know who maybe they will say things about Jesus. Maybe they even identify as a Christian. And whenever you're together, you can probably agree on some political moral issues. But if you really talk about Christ and sin and your trust in Him, and you speak about Christ in the way the Scriptures do, they're going to not want to spend an awful lot amount of time with you. And the only way your relationship's going to be sustained is if you kind of avoid those subjects that might bring conviction. You'll find that these types of people are not going to want to spend much time with you. And it's almost laughably ridiculous for me to even realize this at this moment, that I'm literally comparing the threat of physical death and torture with somebody not thinking highly of me. How weak of people are we? That we've come to this. And yet it's true. Hebrews eleven twenty four through 26 gives us a testimony of one who was not cowering in fear. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. Choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt. For he was looking to the reward. And I believe one of the greatest and most common failures in the modern church is its constant attempt to remove the sting of offense from the gospel in order to fit in with a God-hating world. The church would rather hide her convictions and lock herself away. And let's be honest about something here in our text. These are the disciples who we find are going to become at least many of them, the apostles, the foundation of the church with Jesus as the cornerstone. Now, we need to be clear about something. God is sovereign and he's able to bring about his purposes however he chooses to. But in the from the human vantage point, if these disciples remain in this cowering fear, if they stayed in this condition that we see them in here, there would be no Christian church today. There would be no Christianity. If if these people had remained, surely they would have been saved. These are already clean, Jesus told them. But if they stayed in that room and did not go as His witnesses to the world, if they remained cowering in fear, then the church would have ended right then and there, apart from God doing something else. Something had to change in these people. They had to be delivered from a carnal fear and thrust forward in the power of God. It says that the doors were locked where they were, For fear of the Jews. And Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, peace be with you. The next thing we see is Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, peace be with you. Are we noticing a common theme in John chapter 20? As we look in this section of scripture, you remember last week we saw what? Mary Magdalene is utterly cast down by her sorrow and grief. And the only deliverance that Mary found was when Jesus Christ came to her and spoke her name and supernaturally gave her a sense of peace in her broken heart. She's full of grief and sorrow until Jesus says, Mary. And I ask again, have you individually heard the Lord Jesus Christ saying your name, speaking to you and dispelling the fear and anxiety and sorrow and grief in your own heart? Has He done this work to you? Well, let me suggest this to you in this expression, Jesus coming to them and doing a similar work as He did for Mary Magdalene, that it should not be overlooked that Jesus appears to them here in a supernatural way. John, who's telling us these things, was an eyewitness that the doors were locked. Now, did you notice that expression? Perhaps when you imagine this scene in your mind's eye, you think of people in kind of a run-down house upstairs with one door locked. But did you notice... Doors is plural in the text. Now, I don't believe I'm reading into this too much, that the idea is that there wasn't just one door. They're barricaded in as secure as they think they possibly can be. There's more than at least two doors, because it's pluralized here. At least two doors that they're locked behind. And it says, Jesus came and stood among them. The idea, the understanding is that He appeared supernaturally, miraculously. Miraculously. That there must have been this supernatural work of Jesus in coming to them. And in preparation, I heard one preacher say this recently. What an encouragement this is. There is no door on earth that can keep Jesus out if He decides to come in, including the door to your heart. No door that can keep Him out. These doors are locked, they're bolted, and He comes in anyway. I heard Paul Washer in a sermon one time say this. He said, nowhere in Scripture are we ever told to ask Jesus into our hearts. If He wants to come in, He'll kick the door down. That's the way Paul Washer put it. But what we see in our text is that Jesus comes. They're not there praying, Lord, send us a sign, help us. They're cowering in fear. The Lord doesn't need our permission and praise God that his coming to us and ministering to us in the midst of our fear and doubt is not dependent on us having the right frame of mind, expectation or understanding. I wonder how many of us today came in here anxiously and excitedly anticipating the Lord showing up and speaking to us and meeting with us in an extraordinary way. Are we anticipating that? And there are those who will say the Lord will come in revival if we just have enough faith that He's going to come and do it. And the encouragement to us is that the Lord is not dependent upon you and I having a great degree of faith. His purposes are going to stand. It depends on Him. Now, that's not to disregard our responsibility as those who are called to pray at all times. We're to give thanks. We're to be trusting God. We are responsible for those things. But again, I praise the Lord that His activity in His people is not dependent on what we do or how we think. He's able to overcome and override these things. And the next thing we see in verse 19 is this. He's come and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. Finally, here's His message to them. Here's why He's come to them. Peace with be with you. Was there a more fitting or needed declaration. For these fearful and desperate disciples. We are told they are locked in there for fear of the Jews. Jesus come and speaks peace to them. A fitting word for the hour. Exactly what these people needed to hear. And I wonder is there a more needful thing. For you to hear today than this. The Lord speaking peace to your own heart. The Lord Jesus Christ getting your attention in the same way He got Mary's attention individually and saying to you, there is peace. Now, there are those who might disregard this expression and several of the points I'm going to try to make today from our text by telling us this. That shalom was a common Jewish greeting. You see someone, as another Jew, and you say shalom, at peace, just as a casual greeting. Like I might say, Good morning. Peaceful morning, good morning, good afternoon. And that was a common greeting, but there does seem to be something much deeper and more significant going on here. Jesus is not merely greeting them. He is ministering to their specific and urgent need. These people needed peace in their souls. And we know that without question because He doesn't just say it once. He doesn't just say peace and then never return to it, but he actually reiterates it in the next couple of verses and says again to them, peace be with you. This repetition tells us this is an important thing. We might argue this is the central theme of our section today. Why? Because it's emphasized. It's repeated. It's said again and again. My question is, do you need to hear the Lord speaking peace to you? And maybe you think I mean only as someone who's unconverted. You might say to me, I'm a Christian already. I don't need this extra measure of grace that God is pleased to show. Well, let me remind you, Jesus is talking to those who are his already. Jesus is speaking to his disciples. And while surely we will make applications to the world that do not have peace today. But the immediate context is to you, Christian. You who need peace to rule your heart and the way that you're going to live faithfully for God. The way you're going to be sent by the Lord Jesus is going to be intimately related to your peace. Peace in your soul. And on that note, is it not true that the world agrees with this diagnosis? These disciples needed peace. I say the whole world needs peace. Well, doesn't the world agree with me? Isn't this true that everyone in the world today, right now, would agree that the greatest need in the world is for peace? Now, granted, they don't understand the cause of all the warfare, and they certainly don't have a real conception of what the cure actually is. But they at least recognize the need for peace. How do we know? How do we know that the unbelieving world sees there's a need for peace? Well, here are some ways. They're prepared to honor people like Gandhi, or Mother Teresa. Or Martin Luther King Jr. What for? These people have made advances in peace. Not necessarily Christianity in any real way. People who don't even can't even tell you what the real gospel is. And yet they've made some advances in human peace. And the world honors them. We have one of uh, the most coveted awards in our society and nation. Is the Nobel Peace Prize. For those who make significant contributions toward peace. How often have you ever, and I don't ever watch these things, but I've heard this, so take my word for it, I suppose. How often do beauty pageant contestants, when they're asked, if you could have one thing in the world, what would you want? They all, very ceremonial answer, world peace. That's what we would ask for. We would have world peace. But it doesn't stop at that. What of this emphasis on things like yoga or secular meditation in pursuit of home? inner peace the world says we need peace there's an admittance there's an acknowledgement of the fact that there is not peace there's not peace and I say that's not all consider this do you want to know what the primary purpose behind all sports is whether it's boxing wrestling or any other physical competition you know they're a substitute for war The reason why these physical games have been designed and created is to give human beings a way to exert themselves physically. And whether you're one who's competing or you're one who's in the stands cheering, you get to take part in this conquest. You get to relieve yourself of some tension by seeing these things. This has been historically true. This is how the Colosseum games were emphasized. To distract the people from all the things that might otherwise cause them to riot in the streets. Give them bread and games distract them from the real issues it's a distraction and a replacement. And if you don't believe me that these sporting events and I'm not I'm not saying all of these things are bad. I played sports and think it's a wonderful thing in measure. But these things are not the real solution to the problem. You see, sporting events are designed in order to alleviate and quelch animosity and violent tendencies and to do so in a controlled setting. And I say, if you don't believe me, think about it this way. We do the exact same thing in Awana, don't we? We're going to let them run around and get their energy out and get them in a place where they're ready to sit still and listen. We're going to deal with some of that bent up tension and excitement that they've got. Let them run. The more they run down there, the better hopefully they're going to listen. Get some of the energy out. Dispel some of the tension. In addition to this, there's no end of the enticements that are presented to us on the daily to dull our passions and distract us from our fears and anxieties. This takes place in the form of whether alcohol or drugs or entertainment. It takes place in someone who's ruled by anxiety. We're just going to medicate them to the point where they're numb. We're not actually giving them peace. We're just covering over the realities of fear and anxiety in their heart so that we can kind of get them to sit still and be quiet. But it's not actually a cure for the real problem. And the trouble with all of these things is that they present us with a superficial solution to an infinitely deep problem. and never give us peace. Jesus says to the disciples and to us that He can give peace and He can give real peace. you remember what He said back in chapter 14 to the disciples before His death? In verse 27, this is what He told them. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. Jesus says to us already back in chapter 14, He's giving peace. He's giving peace, not as the world gives. And we've been considering all the different ways the world tries to give peace, but they never actually produce it. We've got united nations and yet countries at war. We've got issues. We've got treaties that have been signed. Abraham Accords signed. It doesn't matter. Man who's at war with God is going to be at war with his fellow man. We can't really give peace, but Jesus says he's come to give peace and notice he anticipates and he knows the troubling in their hearts, the fear that they had. He's already told them well before this hour that we're looking into now, he said, let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. And so I want to know and want to consider with you, what is it about the peace that Jesus offers that makes him unique from the world? How is it that we're actually able to have peace in our hearts and have our fears dissolved? Well, verse 20, when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Now, I believe there are two primary ways in which Jesus specifically addresses their fear and gives them peace in this verse. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Now, the first explanation for why this should produce peace in them is pretty obvious. It's pretty cursory. It's on the surface is that Jesus identifies himself to them. And there's even an expression in that when they saw the Lord, almost as though they weren't exactly sure who this person who's just appeared before us is. Whether that's because of the, the, the marring of his features through the beating that he endured, that they don't recognize him anymore or because of His glorified form, they don't know who He is exactly. That could be the case, but here seems to be the point. Jesus is showing them the source of their sorrow, their fear and concern, is immediately related to His death. They needed to see Him alive, and they needed to know that it was Him. How does He show them that? Well, you know, if He would have just showed them His hands, well, here's someone who appears to have been crucified, But there is something unique in the fact that he shows them his side. What is that? That it wasn't common that you would pierce someone who's being crucified. Actually, commonly, you would let them hang there and suffer until they died. It was a unique thing that they pierced his side. So he's indicating to them who he is as this very one who was crucified before them. But he's also doing something more. Something infinitely more than just revealing his identity to them. And so what might I suggest that this is? What is the other aspect of the way that Jesus is presenting this? Well, the first way I say is that he shows them who he is and that he's risen from the dead. But then we also have to remember something. You see, there are oftentimes in the scriptures glorious truths present. That even those they were being spoken to in the time didn't understand. Do you know what I'm talking about here? There are times, surely we know this is true. There are times, even for example, I'll give you an example. Jesus was speaking to the disciples and their hearts were burning within them as they walked on the way to Emmaus. And they don't realize it's Jesus. And then in a moment they do. And all of a sudden, they look back on all that he was saying, and it takes on fresh meat, fresh joy in their hearts. Why? They're coming to realize this Jesus is the one who was talking to us. They didn't realize it at the time, though. There was a glorious truth that they weren't exactly connecting with. And in a like way, I believe there's something here implicit in these verses that are given to us that are perhaps being overlooked by the disciples, but perhaps not John. Remember this, John is writing this years later after years of growth and sanctification and maturity and probably reading letters from the Apostle Paul and seeing deep and rich theology. He's writing his gospel account years later, and it is very likely that John is pointing us towards some realities here in light of the way he words this. You see, I think there's something much more than just Jesus identifying himself. What is it? Jesus says, peace be with you, and then he shows them his scars. Do you think that's an accident? Do you think that Jesus says, peace be with you, and then immediately after saying, peace be with you, he directs their eyes and their attention to the real and true source of their peace, his scars, what he endured? Is there any greater declaration that could be given of peace to man than to have our attention drawn to the realities of Jesus and his cross? I don't believe it's a coincidence at all. And i demonstrate this hopefully. Think about this in a lot of Isaiah 53 and verse 5. Listen to this. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with His wounds, we are healed. Upon Him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And He looks at the disciples and says, Peace, look at my wounds. Peace, peace to you. My wounds. Now, are they connecting with that fully? I don't know. But I submit to you that we ought to. That there's something supernatural and spiritual contained in this expression that we need to grab hold of. And so my question in light of that to you is, has God the Spirit proclaimed peace to your soul by averting your attention and your gaze to the scars of Jesus Christ? Do you see how Jesus' scars proclaim peace to you? It's kind of an odd thing if you think about it, especially in light of the fact that we recognize his scars are a result of what we have done. Now, typically, in just the common logic, the way that we would think we would expect that the declaration of someone else's suffering, especially when their suffering is the result of what we have done, we wouldn't expect their declaration of these scars and revelation of these scars to be a cause for peace, would we? Would it not be a cause for condemnation? If it's indeed true that it's the sin of these disciples which brought about the scars Jesus is showing them, how can it be that seeing those scars would give them peace? It doesn't make sense on a logical note. Only in the human mind, the natural man will not receive this. But the spiritual understanding, what is it? The truth is that it's not only was the disciples fault, but it was our fault that he suffered. It was our fault that he died. It was our sin that was the burden that he bore. And so how can it be that his wounds, his scars speak peace to us rather than war and death? You remember what happened whenever Cain slew his brother Abel? There's an expression God makes that the blood of Abel is crying out from the ground against Cain. Does not the blood of Christ should it not cry out against you and I saying death? You deserve death. It's your sin that brought about the death of the Son of God. How does that speak peace to us? How can this be? Listen along with me from Hebrews chapter 12. We have a glorious expression here. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 22 through 24, we find this. But you have come to Mount Zion. How can it be? How can it be that the scars of Jesus speak peace to you and not death and damnation? You see, the blood of Abel did cry out from the ground for Cain's death. And the blood and scars of Jesus Christ, supernaturally, miraculously, gloriously, they cry out for our deliverance and justification. And this produces and gives us peace. Romans 5, 1, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And you see, I think the immediate place we go wrong when we think about fears and anxieties and a troubled heart is that we often assume that the real cause of our fear, the real cause of our restlessness in our soul is primarily the result of our circumstances. We're inclined to think that all of the difficulty and the inability that I have to have peace in my heart is the result of what somebody else is doing to me, whether it's a wicked government, whether it's an honorary spouse, whether it's an evil job, an evil employer. Whatever the case is, we imagine this. Whether it's the low number in my bank account or my desire to have everything in a pretty little bow and completed how I want it to be, we think a lack of peace is brought about from something outside of ourselves. When in reality, the restless and peaceless soul is one that is not resting in God. If you think that peace in your soul is primarily going to be dependent upon the actions of another person, positively or negatively, other people in your life, then you're not understanding the kind of peace Jesus is talking about. You need to realize something. He's about to repeat this expression of my peace I give to you right before sending them into conflict and war with the world. And so if your idea of the peace Jesus is telling us about here is going to be dependent on whether other people are treating you fairly or rightly or justly, that's not the peace Jesus is talking about The peace he's promising, as a matter of fact, when he says my peace I give to you back in John 14, that was the night before he was going to be crucified and killed. And he says the kind of peace and resolve that's in my soul, that's what I'm giving to you. It's immediately in the context of suffering and opposition. It's a peace that surpasses knowledge. What is it? You know, it is, Jesus, you recall, Jesus said, not as the world gives, do I give to you. It's a worldly and self-focused kind of peace that's dependent upon the actions of other people toward me. But the peace of God in Christ, which is demonstrated and declared to me by his scars, is a peace that comes from the fact that I know I'm no longer in rebellion and opposition to God. I've been reconciled to the living God of whom his wrath I am owed. And yet I'm not given that wrath. And I have love from this God and I have peace with this God and nothing can take that from me. No amount of strife in my life can take that from me. And even if the world takes my life, I'm going to be with the God who loved me and saved me. That's what these scars tell you. That's the peace that surpasses any experience you have here and now. You have a secure salvation. You have sins that are forgiven. and The life you're now living is not your final place of rest. It's not your home. This kind of contentment is going to inevitably impact your relationships with everyone around you. If you have this kind of peace, Jesus says, my peace I give to you, and then says, look at my scars, this kind of peace, this comes. And it gives us a freedom to entreat those around us in a proper way. And think of the immediate result of this engagement. Here, just a short time later, 40 days later, you're going to find this cowering individual Peter in this room, terrified, standing up to the same Jews he's afraid of here and telling them this Jesus you crucified, God has made both Lord and Christ of all. There's a transformation and the fears are dispelled by looking and seeing Christ. Particularly his scars. Verse 21 carries us right into that thought. Jesus said to them again, he's shown them his scars, he's shown them his wounds. And he says to them again, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I'm sending you. And so as I mentioned, Jesus reiterates the depth of meaning in his statement concerning peace. And the declaration of peace that Jesus gives, that's been given to us and to these disciples, the peace we enjoy as a result of his scars is meant to be declared and taken to the rest of the world. Jesus comes and he says, I've come and I've given you peace. The Father is the one who sent me to give you peace. Now I'm sending you to take the message of peace to others, to take this declaration to the world as I said a moment ago, it does seem almost ironic if we have a worldly kind of peace in our mind, this isn't going to make any sense at all. If we think of peace as simply not having disputes with other people who hate God, that's not the peace Jesus is talking about. He essentially tells them, I've given you peace, now go to war. But the crucial point is that it is not some carnal expression of a military conquest. They were commissioned as those who were supposed to go and proclaim the very peace he had declared to them and to take that message to those who are currently at this time separated from God, not knowing and loving God. And the truth is, he commissions them, as we'll see moving forward in his own authority, his own authority, and you know what? Jesus, if you're a Christian, Jesus has proclaimed peace to you. He's told you you're no longer at war with God, and he's also told you to go and take that message to others. But the only way you're going to have true peace, real peace, it's only realized according to the truth. And it's only realized you'll never know the peace of God if you don't come to realize the necessity of his scars. You see, there's a perfect symmetry to these verses. It flows very smoothly as you if you look at it in its context. Peace. How? Scars. Okay, you've got peace. Yes, go. Tell others. Tell them what? Peace. According to what? My scars. This is the way this is flowing here. And we can't detach the reality of the death of Christ and of sin as we face the lost world. (coughs) They're never going to be reconciled to God if they're not made aware of their guilt and sin against Him and the necessity of His scars for their redemption. Let me be more specific, because I'm talking about out there. But if you're not a Christian here today, you'll never know the peace of God unless you come face to face with your guilt and with his scars. Verse 22. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. That sounds a little bit interesting, doesn't it? Jesus breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. The commentators seem about as perplexed by this statement as I found myself to be. And I won't pretend before you to fully understand all that this expression means. It's a mysterious kind of statement. If you imagine that there's Jesus standing there and he's breathing this kind of magic dust on them. And something's happening. Well, I don't know all the depths of what's communicated here, but I at least can tell you this. There is an underlying principle and there is substance in this verse that we need to be aware of. Here's the first reality. That the breath, this is a further indication to us of Jesus' literal and physical resurrection from the dead. If nothing else, we at least see this before the disciples. Dead people don't breathe. Spirits have no need for breath. They don't have a need to have oxygen to fuel their bodies. Jesus is alive. He's physically alive. And His breath is an indication to us of that. He's living. He's breathing. The breath of Christ here, although as well, must surely be an illustration of the Holy Spirit of God. Jesus has promised that He would send the Spirit. As a matter of fact, the Old Testament word for the translated Spirit means breath. It's also translated wind. The idea of breath, this is the spirit and Jesus, if there was any doubt as to what this is supposed to illustrate as he breathes on them, he says, receive the Holy Spirit. So this is a very comforting and spiritual interaction that's taking place here. And as I mentioned, the commentators disagree and they argue about this. And what are we to make of it? Well, we could ask some questions. Was this a pre-Pentecost administration of the Spirit? Did Jesus say, I'm going to send the Comforter when I go away to the Father? I'm going to send the Comforter. He's going to come on Pentecost. And now here is Jesus coming and saying, okay, disciples, I'm going to give you a little bit of pre-Pentecost Pentecost. Pentecost. I'm going to give you a little bit of the Spirit before Pentecost in some peculiar way. Well, perhaps. We do know that the Spirit was at work in the disciples prior to Pentecost. How do we know that? They believe no one has faith apart from the Holy Spirit of God. So we know they the spirit was working on them. As a matter of fact, Jesus says whenever he asked his disciples on that famous occasion, he says, who do you say that I am? And Peter says, what? You're the Christ. You're the son of the living God. Jesus says, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed that to you. But my father who's in heaven. God, the father, has revealed the truth to Peter. And evidently he did so through the Holy Spirit. So the Spirit was working before Pentecost. And here's what I'll say we can come to. The conclusions we can come to with a measure of authority, with a measure of certainty, is that this may in fact be a precursor to the outpouring at Pentecost and the Spirit of God comforting the disciples in the distress. Or it could be merely an already not yet foreshadowing of what was to come. Jesus has done this kind of thing repeatedly. As a matter of fact, we've already referenced some. Jesus has already said, My peace I give to you back in John 14. And yet, here in John 20, they're living in fear. So they're not experiencing the peace Jesus has already said that He gives to them. You see what I'm saying here? Jesus makes a promise of something that's not yet fully realized in their lives. And so perhaps, He's reiterating, maybe He's reminding them of the promised comforter of the Holy Spirit who's coming. But the primary point seems to be this. The primary principle seems to be this. Jesus has commissioned these disciples to go forth as His witnesses. He says, even as the Father sent me, so I'm sending you with this message of peace to the world. And here, as He's sending them once again, recommissioning them again, and He's going to do it again before He ascends back to the Father in Matthew 28. Before He does that, He's pointing them to a hopeful expectation of God the Spirit's work in what they're doing. You see, these disciples would have no hope of fulfilling this commission without the ministering power of the Holy Spirit. Jesus is reiterating at the very very base level what we can say with absolute confidence is that as Jesus is sending them, He's telling them this Spirit, this receiving of the Holy Spirit that is coming from Me, is necessary for what I'm sending you to do. You can't do it without Him. And that I I say is minimally. Surely it's appropriate and right as we labor before God that we constantly are desiring that God would move by His Spirit in us and enable us to do what He's told us to do. And I guess in the grand scheme of things, it doesn't really matter that much whether or not the timing of these things. This we know, that apart from the Spirit on these disciples, no one's going to be converted. Not a single one. It was necessary that they be filled and empowered by the Spirit of God. The last verse for us to consider today, verse 23, this one is a little bit of a doozy. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. This Scripture has with it historically a great deal of confusion misapplication you can see this clearly in the church of rome the roman catholic church and their doctrine of absolution they believe that it's within the authority of the priest and the papacy to absolve people of sin in other words if you don't have the priest or the pope telling you that your sins are forgiven you can't really know if they're forgiven unless he tells you so you got to go to confession and get him to tell you your sins are forgiven my child is that what jesus is teaching here Is he teaching that we as a church, even in St. Francis, have the authority to subjectively discern on an individual basis whose sins are actually forgiven and whose are not? How do we know? It certainly could sound that way. If you forget the sins of any, they're forgiven. them. If you withhold the forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Well, that is until we come back again. To consider the context in which these words come to us. i tell you this. More scriptures are abused through ripping them out of their context than any other reason. And in the context, what do we find? Christ has proclaimed peace to these disciples in light of his scars. He has commissioned them even as the Father has sent him. And then he reminds them of the empowering work of the Holy Spirit in their commission. And if we disconnect this verse from the ones that's come before then we might end up imagining that you and I, as a, or even us as a church here, have some special power to eternally declare whether someone's lost or saved. That is not what is being communicated here. I, I believe you might could make the, the case that the apostles were given at times a special and supernatural insight into the state of the souls that they were addressing. It does appear that way. And Jesus certainly had that ability to see what was in man. And perhaps the apostles did at some level, but the primary point of this forgiving or withholding forgiveness is directly related to the message that we've been given to proclaim. We have been sent by Christ. He says He sent us in His name in the way the Father sent Him with His authority to declare His message of peace. And I say again, if we detach this verse from that message of proclaiming peace And we're going to assume a subjective power to interpret individual salvation and completely miss the point. Now, the strongest argument that I have, I think you can substantiate what I'm saying from the context here that this is saying the forgiveness of sins is a proclamation in us being sent as those who are going to tell the world about the peace of God in Christ. That our message is related to this, the authority of our message is related to this. It's not our authority. I mean, think of this, Jesus, how many times did he say, I've not come to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. I've not come to speak my own word, but the word of him who sent me. And Jesus says the father sent me now I'm sending you do you not suppose that our message, our word, all that we do and say is to be coming from him and his will. I say yes, so I think from the context we can substantiate that this has to do with the message itself we proclaim, but I'll go further. Is do you see the apostles in the early church going around to people telling them, hey, your sins are forgiven? Hey, your sins aren't forgiven and exercising a kind of individual oversight over individual souls? No, we don't see that at all. Actually, quite the opposite. What we see in the scriptures is that the disciples are given this message of reconciliation. And here's the point. In light of the message that's been given to us, there is no forgiveness of sin apart from the message we're proclaiming. There's no forgiveness of sin apart from his scars, apart from his gospel. And anyone who believes in this gospel can have peace with God. We can say with all authority that if you believe this gospel, your sins are forgiven and they are we can say with all authority, if you reject this Christ, your sins are retained. They're not forgiven. They're not remitted. You're still in them if you reject this Christ. The examples we have for declaring the certainty of forgiveness in his name. Acts 2.38 And Peter said to them, this is immediately following this. Just 40 some odd days later, you've got, you've got Peter here on Pentecost saying this. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now, here's what's interesting. Now, we're told that of the number that were gathered, we're not told that all of them were converted. We're told that 3,000 were. And maybe I'm assuming some things here, but there's a possibility at least that there were more than 3,000 people gathered there. But 3,000 believed. wait a minute. Peter said, all of you repent for the forgiveness of sins. The message is that forgiveness and reconciliation to God comes through repentance and trust in Jesus Christ and receiving of the Holy Spirit. And then he went on, Peter, the same man went on in Acts 4.12 to say, and there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. You see. When filled with the promised spirit, these disciples did not go around presenting themselves as having some special soul reading power. They declared the authoritative truth of forgiveness in Christ alone. That's the point. If if you proclaim a message of the forgiveness of sins in light of the scars and the peace Jesus is promising, then they will be forgiven on those grounds. And none other. There's no other grounds for forgiveness or reconciliation to God. The withholding of forgiveness from any is saying, you, sir, are not trusting the gospel. You're believing a lie. That's the only grounds we have for saying to someone, your sins are not forgiven. If they're not believing in Jesus as he's presented in this book. It's the message that's given and the authority with which they declare it. We're given a perfect picture of this in 2 Corinthians 5 verse 20. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ. Be reconciled to God. Is that not in one sentence? Exactly what we find worked out here. The disciples are given peace. Jesus says as I've been sent by my father. I'm sending you. We're sent in his name on behalf of God. And we're saying be reconciled to God. On these grounds. And if you believe you will be saved and forgiven. And if you don't. Judgment awaits you. And we can say that with all confidence and certainty. The peace that we have with God through Christ is one with which we ought to long for others to know. You and I as Christians have been sent by Christ to proclaim this same message with authority to the world. Not half in, not half out. Certainty. Your sins are forgiven if you trust Christ. They're not if you don't. There's certainty there. And one day we will celebrate together the King of Kings. We're gathered on the first day today celebrating his resurrection. And there is a forever first day coming when we will gather together with all believers for all time proclaiming his glory. And you know what we're going to be singing about forever? His scars. The peace we have because of his scars. Did you know that? Let's look together as we close to Revelation chapter 5. This is the everlasting song of the church. This is the source of peace in your soul is seeing these scars forever. Beginning in verse 1. John writes and says, Then I saw in the right hand of Him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals. And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. Just pause for a moment. This is somewhat of a parallel to the scene. We found these disciples in in the upper room. They're terrified. We've seen Mary Magdalene weeping. If Jesus is not risen from the dead, this scroll can't be opened. That's it. The end of the church, the end of God's purpose for his people for all time. But he appears to them in the like way. Listen, John's weeping. Who can open the scroll? Who can give us peace with God? He says, and one of the elders said to me. Weep no more. Behold, the Lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. You have this picture of John's there weeping. I can't have peace with God because the scroll can't be opened. And the elder says, look up. And he looks up expecting to see this mighty lion, this victorious one, this King of David. And it says in between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. What's this picturing for us here? John sees the lamb standing as if slain. He sees the Lord Jesus Christ saying, look at my scars. They speak peace to you. The scroll is open because of my scars. That's this lamb slain. And he's mighty to open it. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. He took the scroll from his father. And when he'd taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and a golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. There's no peace apart from this lamb slain and the peace he speaks to you is on the basis of his scars, the wrath he endured for you. The message is repent and believe in him. Cry out to God as the only one who can give you this peace and worthy is the lamb slain for us. I pray this meets well with you, and that your soul is encouraged by the testimony of these things that will ask you to bow with me and we'll close in prayer. Heavenly Father, O oh Lord, I thank You for Your Word. I thank You for the wholeness, the completeness of it, that we can look throughout it and have our souls encouraged. Father, I pray You give us boldness to proclaim this message, this message of peace, this message of Christ, our Savior and the Lamb slain for us. I pray that You would help us. Oh God, I ask that You would Sustain us in our weakness. Father, I pray that you would lead us by your spirit. I ask this in Jesus' name.